As recently as June, Jack Coder was contemplating whether to run for re-election as alderman of what is now St. Louis's 8th Ward. But indictments and resignations meant the opportunity arose for him to run for president of the board, a seat which, if he wins, he will hold until April. Coder joins me on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about what he would want to do in that short time in office. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Rachel Lippman. Joining me in the studio today is... Alderman Jack Coder. And Jack is one of two candidates running for the president of the St. Louis Board of Aldermen in November. This is your first time on the show, I think, since 2019. And you've had at least one, possibly two major life changes since then, I think. I know definitely you've had a kid since then. Have you gotten married since then? No, I was I was already married in 2019. Uh, but yes, we, uh, we've we had a child since then. Baby Harry was born uh, in July of this year, so he's three months old. Are you getting any sleep right now between campaigning and being a new dad? Not a lot. Not a lot. We're, we're fortunate. We are, our young son uh, does sleep for long stretches at a time, but there's no rhyme or reason as to what time he's going to go to bed. <laughs> so we've had some late nights. And, you know, being on the campaign trail and at the Board of Aldermen, there's often early mornings. So, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a, a challenging few months. Why do you want this Board of Aldermen position for the short amount of time that you are going to have it? Realistically, <laughs> you're running a campaign to have four months in this office. Yes. I mean, it's a short term race and then whoever wins will run again. But look, I'm running for this job because I'm sort of frustrated like so many people I talk to, with the direction city government's headed. You know, we're, we're not doing the basics. We're really struggling with core city services, answering 911 calls, policing the streets, picking up trash, filling potholes. These are the services people have come to expect and demand and pay for, and we've got to provide them. And it doesn't seem to be a priority uh, amongst the leadership at City Hall right now. And for once, it's not a matter of resources. We actually have resources to address some of these issues. It's just priorities. So I'm running to be you know, a, a strong voice uh, for good government and somebody who's going to get up every day and say, what are we doing to make the city safer? And what are we doing to grow the city's tax base? Realistically, what are you going to be able to do to fix the nuts and bolts of city government in four months? I'm looking at this in two ways. We're running for president of the Board of Aldermen now. If successful, turn around and run again in the spring. I mean, so it's sort of a long time horizon. We're not going to fix all these problems in four months. I have no uh, realistic you know, opportunity. We're not going to be able to do that. But what we are going to be able to do in the next four months is sort of make sure that everyone in city government understands we've got to focus number one, on public safety every day. We've got to get that right if we're going to tackle these bigger issues. And so I'm going to use my voice and the platform as president of the board and work with my colleagues to make sure that's the top priority on our agenda. And we will talk about your plans for public safety a little bit later in the podcast. Were you already planning to run for this race in 2023 before the opportunity to run earlier popped up? I mean, not really, no. I was planning on, I was considering whether or not I was running for re-election for alderman in the what is now 
eighth ward. I've been the alderman of the seventh ward for approximately eight years. It's now the eighth ward, roughly the same boundaries as my old district, uh, expanded a little bit north and south. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, that race and, and, and turning around and running again. Uh, and then, you know, in light of indictments and resignations, you know, there was an opportunity to step up in a big way. Uh, the timing, uh, you know, obviously wasn't great for my family. My wife was Almost, she was eight months pregnant when we decided to do this. Um, but, but I saw an opportunity, and, I, and there's a leadership vacuum at the board, and I think I'm uniquely positioned to fill it. I've got the support of a number of my colleagues, North and South, a majority of the Black Caucus at the Board of Aldermen supporting me. And I think I can bring people together at the board, have a cohesive agenda, and help get things done at City Hall. This race sort of in the, you know, chatterverse I've seen described as a number of different things. It's been developers versus workers. It's the, you know, two different wings of the Democratic Party. How are you thinking about this race more broadly or are you thinking about it sort of more symbolically broadly? I mean, I'm looking at this race as basically pragmatism and good government versus ideology. You know, I'm running for the, on the nuts and bolts issues. I'm running and talking about public safety and answering 911 calls and picking up trash. And my opponent has much bigger plans. And, you know, she's a, she's a strong progressive. She's got a good following. Um, but we just view the world and the, the role of local government very differently. I mean, I think our role as the most local government there is. I mean, we are, we are people's first contact with government. We get the calls every day about the potholes, about the trash. We've got to get that stuff right. Now, we've got to think bigger. We've got, we've got huge disinvestment in parts of our city, but that's a big part of our job, economic development. And development's not a dirty word. It's important. It creates jobs. It creates opportunity. It brings more resonance. I mean, so I'm talking about those issues that, frankly, we have some control over at City Hall. So the president of the Board of Aldermen's job is pretty specifically laid out in the roles. He's the traffic cop, you know, presides, takes the chair, preserves decorum, decides questions of order. How do you in that role get government working better at the nuts and bolts level? The president of the board does a number of things, and you just touched on one of them. You call the balls and strikes at the meetings. You preside over our sometimes, you've, you've sat through a lot of them, our sometimes rowdy and, and raucous uh, uh, board of aldermen meetings. You've got to be sort of the um, neutral party up there on the dais calling the balls and strikes, running the meeting. I think I've got the respect of many of my colleagues that currently chair the Rules Committee. I think I can handle that part of the job. Another big part of the job is serving on the Board of Estimate and Apportionment. So along with the mayor and the comptroller, it's basically the three-person panel that really prioritizes and makes the major spending decisions and crafts the budget for the city. And so I think that's where in this job you can prioritize making sure budget priorities are and dollars are directed towards those essential city services. And lastly, another part of the Board of Aldermen's job that, frankly, one that we've not done a good job at in recent years is oversight. You know, and, and I'm not talking all gotcha. These aren't January 6th hearings. But every week, the board should be having hearings, asking questions about what's getting done at City Hall, how money's getting spent, how resources are allocated, and how the departments are functioning, and where they have shortfalls and need help. And, and we're not doing a very good job of that right now. And I think that takes strong leadership at the top to work with the committee chairs to make sure those hearings are getting set up and they're happening. 
What is the difference between a November general election campaign for a city seat versus what is traditionally a March-April campaign cycle for the city? That's a lot different. I've always run myself in in municipal elections, right, in the spring. I've worked a lot of big campaigns, statewide campaigns for uh, President Obama back in 08, for Senator McCaskill in, in 12 and 16. But this is the first time I've been on the ballot in a November election. I can tell you it is very different. I mean, you've got to get through the noise of sort of national politics. You know, there's a there's a U.S. Senate race. There's, you know, there's an Illinois governor's race that's dominating the airwaves. So trying to get through and make sure your message is heard. And also, you've got a lot more voters to talk to. So you figure municipal turnout on a good day in the spring is like maybe what, 20? 20 to 30 yeah. percent. I think it was a little over 30 percent when Mayor Jones and Kara Spencer ran against each other last year. I mean, we're looking at at least 50 percent turnout for a midterm general. So it's over 100,000 voters. It's a lot more than you're used to trying to communicate with. And the airwaves are more expensive, too, in a November election because they can charge for those big national Correct. groups. Correct. So it's, it, it, yes, the airwaves are more expensive. So it just makes for a really expensive campaign cycle in a very condensed time frame. It's not not like we were um, focused on raising money for this and doing this for a year. We basically had a couple of months. It was to oh, put we this have together. June, <laughs> right, right. So you know we're staffed up. We've been fundraising aggressively. Um, you know we're on TV, we're on cable, we're on the streaming platforms. We've got ads on social media. We're doing mail. I mean we're, we're knocking on doors. We're doing all the things you do in a campaign uh, in a very condensed time frame while we're competing to get our message out there against federal candidates. Why do you think you will do this role that you've been talking about, not only calling the balls and strikes, but getting the Board of Aldermen to do its oversight job and work on functions of government better than your opponent? Well, yeah, I have a background as a, as a lawyer and as a former prosecutor. So I think as it comes as it relates to having hearings on important issues and, and, and helping think through what those issues are and scripting questions and everything like that, I think that's something I, can, I will be very good at. Um, I also, you know, in my time at the board, have... You know, develop very close and strong relationships with my colleagues north and south and have their respect. Um, and, and, and that's something I think where me and my opponent differ. Not that she's not respected, but she has a much more difficult time sometimes getting along and building consensus versus me. I work very hard to find 15 votes. You've sat through our meetings. When we were in person, I'd be on the floor running around hustling up my votes because you got to be able to count to 15. And then if elected to this job, uh, it's going to be an interesting time. One, we've got to do the hard work in the next few months of preparing the board from a major transition mm -hmm. from 15, uh, or sorry, from 28 aldermen down to 14. And that's going to take somebody who can make those hard decisions, work with their colleagues. There's going to need to be a lot of compromise in the coming months on staffing issues, on our rules. We just have a lot to do in our own house internally. Um, plus, we've got, you know, still a lot of money that's got to get appropriated for uh, from the American Rescue Plan Act. Uh, and, and that's going to take some, you know, some compromise and negotiation with the administration. How would you want to see, as we transition to talking a little bit more about some of the issues, where should the priorities be for that remaining ARPA tranche? I, f I lose track between the city and the county how much is left, but you've got a fair amount of remaining. Where should it go? Yeah, you've got north of $200 million uh, still to spend, and, and, and that is going to be a big topic of conversation. I think there's probably a philosophical difference amongst some of the aldermen and the administration over how those dollars should be spent. 
we've not done a very good job of spending the first tranche. The almost $200 million that we appropriated last July, July of 2021, we were told it's life and death. You've got to appropriate this money right now. We did it. As we sit here today, 15 million of those dollars have been spent. And I just think that's shameful. That was COVID money that was supposed to be helping people with recovering from the pandemic. And frankly, it's not getting spent. So one, we need to be figuring out why isn't the first round getting spent? Before we start layering more money on COVID relief, why don't we get what we've got out the door? I mean, especially it relates to human services, something like, uh, you know, we, we allocated almost $16 million for uh, increasing shelter space and outreach to our homeless population. And to date, we've spent $2 million of those dollars. And I don't know, walking into the studio today, it's getting cold outside again, and we're not ready for winter. And so I think we need to be asking those questions on the first round of spending. Another example, our Healthy Home Repair Program. $15 million was allocated to get through the backlog of that program, which main component is to keep seniors in the home, make sure that we can repair their homes and that they can age in dignity and stay in their homes. None of that money's been spent. And we're just being told just the other day that, oh, they don't have enough contractors. Okay, so what do we need to do? What do we need to do to get more contractors? Do we need to provide, I don't know, additional resources, uh, whether it's through marketing or other efforts to get these contractors to apply for these funds? Do we need to set up a training program to train more of them? I think we need to be asking the questions of, one, how do we spend the money we've already appropriated? As it relates to the second round, the 200 plus million, I think we've got to look long and hard at how we use this second round of dollars for more nuts and bolts things we can see. Traffic calming. I know the mayor, I've called for this and the mayor has said she wants to appropriate $40 million. I think that's a great use. $40 million would go a long way towards, towards slowing down traffic on some of our major thoroughfares. I think we need to be looking at using these dollars for more brick and mortar things um, versus additional so social safety nets when we haven't even spent the first round of those dollars. So as Board of Aldermen President, then, what is your role in, in, in doing that oversight? It's just bringing folks in, having those discussions about what do you need to better spend these funds. You know, one of the things I keep hearing is that one of the reasons the money's not getting spent is nonprofits simply won't apply because, one, they're overwhelmed, they're short-staffed, and there's a lot of compliance required with taking these federal dollars, and it's an intimidating process at times. So what do we do to help them to make it easier for nonprofits to apply for this money? Maybe we partner with some of our accounting firms downtown and say, hey, you know what? We're going to put out an RFP. Non accounting firms work with these nonprofits. You know, we'll make sure your bills are paid, but we want to make sure they have the confidence that they can apply and spend these funds and not worried about, worry about the IRS down the road. And I think there's a lot of ways we could get creative on this front. Um, and, and thus far, we just don't seem to be doing that. And, and so I think we've got to have those honest discussions about what are the shortfalls? How, why are we having so much trouble spending these dollars? And so we can do that either through our existing committee structure, or maybe we look at what we did in the early days of the pandemic, where we set up a special committee whose sole focus is tracking the spending of these American Rescue Plan Act dollars. We did that early on with the, the CARES Act money that came in um, back in you know 2020 when we were in the middle of the pandemic. How often did that committee meet? Fairly regularly. We would okay. meet to appropriate dollars, and then we would get regular progress reports from the previous administration. Okay. okay. Taking kind of a big step back broadly yeah. at economic development, part of the reason that you're running for this office right now was corruption around development incentives. 
Does the scandal that happened say more about the people involved, the process of getting incentives in St. Louis, or a little bit of both? I think it's definitely a little bit of both. You've got a backward system right now as it relates to incentives. Um, right now, developer comes to Alderman and says, here's a project I've got. Here's the pictures. Here's what I want to do. Will you support it? And will you support my incentives? And you're often asked to make, aldermen are asked to make a decision without having vetted the developer, without having looked at a, a capital stack, without knowing um, the, the true needs, financial needs of the project. Um, now, I think in recent years, we've sort of gotten away from that model. It's not perfect. And I know this administration is working on sort of a new framework for how incentives work. Um, but that's not where the process should start. If you're a developer and you've got a good project, you should be starting with professional planning staff and economic development staff at City Hall. They should be the first line. Go see them, run the numbers, do some vetting of the developer. Has this person worked in the community before? Do they have success in other cities? Once that's fleshed out, then involve the policymakers, the legislators, to say, here's what's being proposed. What do you think? What will your community think? Now, you, know, you can't cut the ele elected officials out of the process, and, and I'm not suggesting that. But you do need to, I think, have somebody doing some basic due diligence on these folks before this gets to you know, policymakers, some of whom just you know, aren't equipped to look at the finer, granular details of a development project. But they are going to be interested in what it looks like, the proposed use, the density, those types of questions, and they need to be able to take those to their community. What would you do as board president in the time to kind of influence some of the changes to incentives that are percolating at City Hall? I think, one, we've, we've got to get our house in order on the city side. Between the board and SLDC and the mayor's office, we've got to come to some consensus on sort of what are our goals here. Is, is our goals uh, on the development side? Are, are, we, are we trying to increase the population? Are we just trying to increase affordable housing? Is it both? I think we need to be clear to what are our development priorities, first and foremost. And I, I, I don't think there's consensus on that topic. And once there is, we need to develop sort of a clear guidelines for the development community because, and I've been saying this for a while, and I, and I do think um, the administration is sort of starting to understand this, you know, these developers need to know what the rules are. That's something I've been saying for, you know, all two plus years. Um, you've got to be able to tell folks who want to deploy capital, who want to build things, here's what we expect. You know, we want X amount of affordable housing in a project. We, we want, you know, X amount of retail, if any. Here's what the parking requirements are. Now, some of that stuff's laid out in the code, but it's ever-changing, and, and it changes by administration. And we've got to be clear with folks, if we expect them to deploy millions and millions of dollars of capital, um, they need to know what the rules are. Or they go elsewhere where they do know what the rules are and where they're comfortable they can get a return on their investment. So what would be your priorities for development in the city of St. Louis, and how does it vary across the city? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the, the focus of development in the city has to be strengthening the north side. I mean, you know, we've my ward has benefited greatly from economic development tools and, and, and um, economic development dollars. I mean, we've seen 23% growth in the seventh ward in the last decade of which eight years of which I was the alderman. Um, so we've grown our population and the tools that we use to do so to bring more density and more people, we should be able to use and deploy in neighborhoods that haven't seen that investment. And we've got to build off of our strengths. So building around national geospatial intelligence, building north of the central west end, sort of the west end area. These are natural corridors to build more um, and, and grow the city. And so I think we've got to play to those strengths. I also think, you know, we've set up these sort of 
um, these business corridors. I don't remember what, exactly what we call them, uh, using ARPA dollars. I think it was basically business corridors yeah. or streets or whatever right. it was. You know, we'll go with business building corridors. Building off of those <laughs> strengths. So we have to be smart about how we're deploying um, deploying these dollars and where we're encouraging investment. we got to give people a roadmap on that. Um, and then I think we need to be, you know, have candid conversations about what kind of development are we looking for? Are we looking for more market rate? Are we looking for affordable housing, a mix? I mean, it's not all the same people. Folks who like to build market rate don't always work in the affordable housing space. So sometimes you've either got to form partnerships there or you've got to get a developer out of their comfort zone to do something they're not used to doing. And so that takes having clear rules so folks can staff their projects accordingly, put together their proposals. And, you know, and what we're seeing right now is sort of halt. There's not a lot going on. If you go down to you know, what we affectionately call City Hall West and visit the St. Louis Economic Development Corporation, you know, the agendas are pretty light. There's not a lot of projects moving because there's a lot of uncertainty, not just locally, but with interest rates um, and with may potentially a looming recession. And so, you know, we I think we've got to be all on the same page as to sort of what our goals are. And I think our goal has to be growing the tax base. I mean, if you want to dig St. Louis out of you know, some of the get us out of some of the really challenging problems we're facing, um, as it relates to gun violence, poverty, a shrinking school system. You've got to be able to grow the population, and we're not doing that. The city's shrinking. I mean, from the last census, the city lost. Uh, you know, it, from 2020 until when we drew the map, I think we lost almost another 10,000 people. And, and so, it's been concentrated very much north. Very You're building much on the north south, side. right? But right, right. We've 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 developed the sort of spine, the corridor of the city. You know, we don't frankly use a lot of incentives for housing development on the south side. Um, but we've got to build back up that north side. I mean, we have to. It has to be everyone's focus. Um, at, you know, as we move forward, because we've got to be able to grow our population. So you work for a law firm that does handle a lot of development incentives for developers. Are you confident that you followed the conflict of interest rules? And then how would you handle possible conflicts as board president? Yeah, I'm, I'm confident. I, I, I take my um, conflict of interest checks and my ethical obligations, both as a sitting member of the board and as a practicing attorney, extremely seriously. You know, that's all you've got in this game is your reputation. Uh, whether you're a politician or a lawyer, uh, it starts and ends with your reputation. And, and there's nothing I would do to jeopardize the, the law license I've, I've worked so hard and the reputation I've worked so hard uh, to form over the years. So that's something I take very seriously. And you've been in the meetings. I occasionally have to recuse myself. If, if, if my firm ever has anything at all going on at the Board of Aldermen, I disclose what that is and I abstain as I've done since day one. And if elected to this job, I'm going to have to take a step back and take a look at you know the roles and responsibilities as being president of the board and, and the time management it takes and whether or not it makes sense to continue practicing law and private practice. It's not something I'd like to give up. I, I love working and helping uh, my clients, but, but my number one priority will be pr being president of the board of aldermen. And if it's not tenable to do both, I'll step back from one. The other major issue that you've been talking about indirectly is public safety. What does Jack Coder's plan for public safety look like as if you are elected to be president of the board? I mean, we, we have to first and foremost recognize that it's the number one issue in the city. And I don't get the sense that for some of our leaders at City Hall that public safety is the number one priority, and it has to be. You can go to any corner of the city, talk to any resident, talk to any business, large or small, and they will tell you their number one concern is safety. 
The first step of that is making sure we've got a fully staffed police department. I mean, we're more than 160 officers short, and we're only 160 short because we just cut 100 vacant positions from the department last year that we, frankly, were never going to fill. And so staffing up the department to its full strength it's got to be the first priority. And to do so, and we're going to have to be honest about what we're paying officers. we got to pay them better. We also need to train them better. That costs money, right? They need to be well-trained. They need to be accountable to citizens. Everybody wants more cops and clinicians. It's a program that's been successful when we send out mental health uh, professionals to, to respond to calls. But the reality is that takes more police resources, not less, right? We're not sending mental health care professionals to volatile situations on their own. That, we can't do that. And so we have to be honest that actually doing this other work we want to do to help folks who are struggling and in getting, having mental health professionals and others respond to calls that don't always call, call require a police officer is a great idea. But the reality is sometimes it might require more police, not less, because they still need to be there. So that's got to be a priority. And I'm, one of the things we've got to do is stop this sort of regional fight over wages. You know, we're losing officers at an alarming rate to St. Louis County, to suburban departments, to even Jefferson County now is poaching our officers. Um, I know down in Soulard, where I live, at a donut shop of all places, go figure, St. Louis County sets up a recruiting station on the weekends and tries to recruit people to join their department. This has been a conversation in the county as well, but voters in 2018 in the city supported their own version of Proposition P. It was a sales tax to support funding for the police. You're talking about not being able to pay officers, we're understaffed. Does that mean the city wasn't good stewards of the money that is coming in through that? Or what's going on there? Well, so back then we gave our officers close to a $10,000 raise. I mean, because they were very underpaid back in 2018 when we passed Prop P. I think though times have changed. I mean, that was many years ago. The reality is wages are rising. People expect more to do jobs, and policing has gotten more dangerous in that amount of time. So if we're going to recruit people, we've got to be able to pay a competitive wage. And this is not just for policing. I mean, this is a conversation we need to be having about all of our city departments. We're critically understaffed for 911 operators, 51% short in our 911 department. I mean, the reality is in this town right now, if you call 911 and need help, there's a strong likelihood you're going to get on, put on hold. And that can be a life or death situation if you really need, if, you know, if you're having a medical emergency. And so we've got to look at staffing across the board and have, frankly, frank and hard discussions about staffing. Because if we're going to pay people more, right, that money doesn't come out of thin air and you can't just use federal dollars that are going to dry up to I pay I mean, the city's more. budget is truly a zero-sum game. Right. It has to be balanced. You can't deficit spend. So... Yeah. What what do you do as, you know, you are not going to, unless you are reelected in March, handle the budget. Right. But what what do you do when the city's budget truly is a zero-sum game and you do need to boost staffing? The budgeting process for the ne- upcoming fiscal year, which starts July 1, I mean, that's it's basically already started, right? They're already putting together budget projections and thinking through what a draft budget would look like. And we've got to go through the budget and the department's department by department and look at where we've got vacancies, of which there's over a thousand. And our our city workforce is 25%, maybe more short. And so we've got to look at those departments and say, where we've got 40 vacancies, for example, in the forestry department. I don't know if the number is exactly 40, but all right, well, we're never going to fill those 40 spots. 
Let's, much like we did with the police department last year, let's cut some of those. Let's cut 20 of them. Let's get me 20 good tree trimmers and take the money we're allocating for those other 20 positions and spread that across to give people a raise. I mean, that's the kind of work we have to do. So we're likely going to have to shrink the workforce that we can't fill anyway and use some of those savings to pay our employees more so we can retain the ones we've got and attract new ones. Residency has been dropped for police officers, at least temporarily. Yeah. Do you think it should just be dropped in general now? Does it matter where city workers live anymore? I I do. I mean, and and I've been supportive of lifting residency in the past. And and, and it's a controversial topic. But my philosophy is, look, if you're going to show up and give us an honest day's work, I don't really care where you live. Um, And I think ultimately city employees will still choose to stay in the city because they're proud of the city. They love it. And that's why they work for the city. More broadly speaking, um, obviously, you talk about getting police staffed up. Are there non-police solutions that you would support continuing to allocate resources for, whether it's through the budget, through ARPA, through other sources of funding? Yeah, of course. You need to continue to support violence prevention, you know, our Cure Violence program. You need to expand that. I mean, the solution is not just throw more cops on the street, right? You've got to have deterrence. You've got to have violence interruption. And you've got to have people in the community that aren't wearing uniforms and badges that are engaging with the population that's most likely to commit some of these violent crimes. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's a it's got to be multi-pronged, and so I think we need to continue funding those programs. And those are programs that yes, we can use some of these ARPA dollars to fund for a number of years, you know, even into the future. Got to expand those cops and clinicians, for example. That's one that needs to be expanded. Um, I think we also need to look at you know not just on the policing side, but when we're sending when folks are suffering, whether it's a drug overdose or some other medical emergency. What resources are we allocating to those calls? Who are we sending? You know, why are we sending fire trucks for medical emergencies? You know, we need to get. Because we don't have enough ambulances. Right, most we don't likely. have enough ambulances. We need to get nimble. Should we be sending ambulances to some of these calls, or should they be, you know, SUVs with trained responders? I mean, other cities are getting much more nimble in sort of how they're addressing, um, you know, emergency service calls, not just on the police side, but on the fire and EMS side. And we've got to look at all of those things. And we'll be right back after this quick break. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Board of Aldermen President Candidate Jack Coder. And real quick on COVID-19, for whatever reason, there just seemed to be less angst and drama over restrictions in the city than the county, despite the fact that they really were kind of very similar. Why do you think that was? Well, I, I, you know, we don't have, I mean, the city, the Board of Aldermen in particular is 28 Democrats of varying degrees. And I, I don't think we didn't have anybody that was denying the existence of the virus or the fact that, well, <laughs> maybe we had a couple folks. Yeah, <laughs> you've sat to <laughs> I'm those not going to name names. OK, you're right. But, <laughs> but I think in, in sort of leadership of government and leadership at the board, everybody took this pandemic extremely seriously. We recognized it was a, a, a very serious airborne virus that we had to deal with. And so I think there was just a much more understanding amongst um, not only sit, the city officials, but also our residents that this is a serious pandemic that we've got to take extraordinary precautions against. And so you didn't see sort of the uproar uh, amongst folks in the city about some of the shutdowns and restrictions. Now, I think if you tried to do some of those restrictions again, I think you might see some pushback from all over. But at the time, people were willing to to, to make those short-term sacrifices uh, to stay safe. And, and frankly, I'm glad that we did speak with the United Voice, you know, when we had to authorize, you know, extending restrictions through resolution at the board. I mean, we tried to just 
just do so with little fanfare. Get it done. Support our public health department um, and our health director. And, 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 I'm, and I'm proud of sort of how the city handled this, both under the, cur- the, the former administration and, and the current administration. Should the Board of Aldermen get back into the chambers on a regular basis, even if just for the full board meetings? The Board of Aldermen should most definitely be meeting in person. Should it be in chambers? That's a question I don't know. I will res- I'll re- defer to the health officials. One of the reasons we're not meeting in chambers currently, at least what we've been told, is you've been to the building. It's an old building. It literally has no ventilation of any kind. It has no central air. It's got some boilers. Um, and, and, and the health officials were worried that basically we were trapping air in there and, and exacerbating uh, the virus in that And I know there's some mold issues, too, in some of the offices um, and et cetera. Sure, there's but... some mold issues. But so, all right, if we can't meet in chambers, this is St. Louis City. We own a lot of buildings. We own a lot of big buildings. I mean, I've spoken with folks at the convention center. They've said, you guys can come meet in our facility. It's publicly owned. Not a lot going on in there on a Friday morning. We don't need a huge space. We could have our Friday meetings, our full board meetings at the convention center. I've spoken with the ownership of the St. Louis Blues at the Enterprise Center. They've said, come on over. It's a publicly owned building. We had Put a it big, up on the scoreboard. We had a big debate about it a couple of years ago. Um, and, and it's literally across the street from City Hall. We could still park in our parking I mean, heck, did you get sworn in outside? I can't remember I if you were a, a part I of that. That group. You got I got yeah, okay. my first board meeting uh, as an alderman was outside in Pelker Park across the street from City Hall. There was a bomb threat, and we got sworn in and had a meeting outside. So we can meet anywhere. We've got to get creative. Um, if if it's if our chambers isn't a safe place to meet without some upgrades, then let's go meet elsewhere on Friday mornings uh, in particular. And and I also think we'll have to just make those upgrades. I mean, we've spent a lot of. CARES Act dollars and American Rescue Plan Act dollars upgrading other city facilities to make them safe. If it costs a million and a half bucks to make our chambers a safe place to meet, let's make those investments because they'll pay dividends down the road. Um, And in the short term, on the committee hearing side, I actually think the committee hearings are working okay on Zoom. You might actually give people more access because they don't have to necessarily, you know, drop what they're doing. If they want to speak at a committee hearing or something and they're at work, they can just take a break uh, and join us on Zoom. So I think we have to probably look at a hybrid model where maybe we are in in session because our our committee room is actually, I think, a safe room. It's well ventilated. There's uh, actually air conditioning in that yeah, room. But still allow the public to, 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 to attend those committee hearings uh, via Zoom. But I think it's critical, uh, whether I got elected or my opponent, that we get back to meeting in person. Um, not just, we got to lead by example, right? And we're not. I mean, the rest of City Hall is open. And we're still, you know, hiding in our basements, um, after, you know, as we're two plus years into this pandemic. So I think it's critical we get back to in-person meetings. I don't, if we want to take the show on the road and get out of City Hall, I think that would be actually a great thing to do and, and also show off some of our city assets. And the chairs, I think, are objectively more comfortable in virtual meetings than in the Kennedy Room for guests. <laughs> that very well could be true, yeah. So you mentioned this earlier, but you will be helping transition the board to a 14-member organization. What right now, as you're looking at it, are the biggest gaps to making a 14-member board function well for the city? So I think I think ultimately a 14-member board will function very well for the city. But 
what we've really got to do on the board is we've got to look wholeheartedly at our rules, um, which we need to get started on, you know, with all the with the campaign and setting the turmoil uh, in, in leadership changes there. That's everything's been sort of on pause. But we've got to look at our rules. Doesn't make sense to have 14 committees for 14 aldermen. So we've got to restructure. Everybody gets a committee <laughs> exactly. chair. Exactly. We've got to restructure that process. Um, we've got to we've got to look at our pay and our staffing, which those aren't easy decisions to make. But I think everyone recognizes if you've got more territory to cover and more responsibility. We're going to need some help. We don't have any real staffing right now at the Board of Aldermen. You have like the clerk and the secretary, right. we have, mostly, right? We have, yeah. a, we have a legal counsel that we all share. We have a clerk. We have an assistant clerk. And we have, you know, a, a, a number of- Shout out to of, Sharita. She's right, keeping Sharita. the meetings functioning. She's wonderful. <laughs> um, and we have, a, we have pooled secretaries or assistants that we use. But we don't have any sort of real legislative staff. And so I think if you're going to have 14 aldermen and increase their responsibility, increase the number of commitments they have, you know, in the evenings and on the weekends and things they've got to attend, as I'm discovering trying to campaign citywide, you can't be everywhere at once. You need to have surrogates. You need to have people speaking on your behalf. I think it's appropriate that each alderman has a staffer that works for them, that they trust, that they can send to meetings on their behalf. Um, that can you know, that person can be somebody with a legislative background, whatever that, that, that alderman wants. I mean, the county council has something similar. They each get an aide. Um, we've got to look at that. And I and think- And the county council has kind of a support staff as well, yeah. too. Yes, like the, the council itself, not individual council members. Yes, and we have some positions currently for some support staff, for a financial analyst, um, uh, for I, I think a legislative researcher. Those positions are vacant right now. I think think we need to make sure those are filled as well. Um, and then the other thing we've, we've got to look at is aldermanic pay. I mean, you know, if, as, we, as we get into the fall and people are going to make decisions about whether or not they're going to run for these jobs or not, if, it's pretty, one of the decisions you want to make as you're deciding whether or not you're going to seek a job is what the heck does it pay? Um, and so I, I think at some point we've got to adjust our pay. I know my, my former colleagues, Alderwoman Navarro and Alderwoman Martin, who have both left the board in recent months, um, worked on sort of examining other boards and councils across the country. That's sort of what they pay. And I think it will be, uh, I think we do at some point need to raise the pay for these 14 new aldermen to something more commensurate with what the responsibility is, and then decide are these full-time jobs or not, because I think that's another deciding factor. So there will be lots of jockeying ahead of 2023. People are going to start making decisions about their political futures. How do you work as the you know leader of the board to keep the attention focused on the city's business right. and not let whatever the heck is going to happen in March or April impact what's going on at these meetings? Right. Well, po- look, I mean, I'm not naive. Politics is going to influence all of this, right? And that's why I think I'm uniquely situated for this job. I, I, I've, I'm good at building consensus. I'm good at working with the board. And, and, and at some point, you know, you're going to have to just navigate that difficult political environment and make sure the aldermen, whether they're seeking re-election or not, or running against one of their colleagues, are acting to make sure we're setting up the board for future generations for success. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. I'm on Twitter at rlipman. That's two P's, two N's. Jack, where can people find you in the campaign on social media? I'm on Twitter at Jack Coder. I'm also on Facebook and my website's jackcoder.com. Until next time, so long.